It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The podcast will begin after a message from our sponsor. A message from the Martin Centre. You like listening to Politico's EU Confidential? We have two podcasts you might want to try out. If you're interested in defence and security issues, make sure you tune in to the Martin Centre SoundCloud or YouTube channel for Defence Dialogue with Dr. Nicholas Novaki. In Defence Dialogue, you can listen to a variety of guests ranging from V.B. Katainen to Carl Bildt. If, however, you prefer to bring European history and civilization into perspective with contemporary issues, you should try our Europe Out Loud podcast by Federico Ottavio Rejo. Both podcasts are available at the Martin Center's website too, so make sure to check them out. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and I hope you're ready for women to rule. Politico hosted a summit on that theme this week, and with the exception of me, everyone on the podcast is female this week. Our feature interview is with Fumzile Mlambo Nguka, the executive director of UN Women. She's got passionate views about violence, Me Too, and more. The interview is conducted by Ginger Hervey from Politico. Our podcast panel gets into the World Cup spirit with a series of EU kickoffs, EU red cards, and more as we chew over the Italian government's very nasty views on its Roma communities and the maneuvers of Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. But first, let's hear from Ginger Hervey, giving some context to the main interview. Joining me now on the podcast is Ginger Hervey, one of our journalists here at Politico. Welcome, Ginger. Thanks, Ryan. So we've got you on because you actually conducted the feature interview of this week's podcast with Fumzile Mlambo Nguku, who is the executive director of UN Women. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, You did it a few weeks ago at the development days of the EU. Yes. So there was a big conference on development from a European perspective and from a global perspective. And Mrs. Mlambo Nguka was there. She was speaking about an initiative that had just been launched between the EU and the UN to prevent violence against women globally. So we caught up with her about that. And then more broadly, she's a really interesting person, kind of a role model for a lot of women. She was deputy president of South Africa for a couple years, and she was instrumental in ending apartheid in her country and had a lot of other credentials. So it was a really interesting conversation to talk to her about the work she's doing now and then women's changing perspectives. One thing that you get into at the end of the discussion is about the Istanbul Convention, which is about trying to eliminate violence against women. But that was a really tricky topic to talk about at an EU event, because you'd think that European countries are really good on this front, globally speaking. Right. 
actually, a bunch of them haven't signed and ratified the convention. Yeah, so that was one of the questions that I asked and kind of an interesting tension when you look at Europe's policy on violence against women because the commission gave half a billion dollars to this spotlight convention to end violence against women globally. But then when you look at the most comprehensive treaty on violence against women, which is the the Istanbul Convention, 11 countries haven't ratified it. And the EU has signed it, but not ratified it. And so the question I got into was, was kind of, is it hypocritical of the EU to be trying to, you know, put money towards ending violence against women abroad when they haven't really straightened up their own house? And so we, we talked about that a little bit, and I think it's it's something that it doesn't have to be an either-or situation, and the two, you know, abroad and at home should move in parallel. And what are the sort of reasons that people have been giving for not ratifying this convention? So it includes a lot of information. A lot of it's about violence against women, domestic violence, measures that need to be implemented. And so for some countries, it's kind of archaic rape law language. So they would need to change laws and legislation. So it would take a while. That's the case in Germany. And then other countries, it's their protesting is more conservative protests against certain definitions of heterosexual marriage um, or homosexual relationships. And are we redefining the family via a convention about violence? Yes. Exactly. Interesting. We're probably not going to solve that one right here, right now. (laughs) Another big topic that you came across that we've both worked on is Me Too allegations and the problems that women face Mm -hmm. literally everywhere regarding harassment and violence. Um, What was your takeaway from, from that discussion with her? Well, it was interesting. She was very passionate about it, and understandably, because she's been in a position of male-dominated fields, politics, and you know, education development for a really long time. And so speaking to her about her experiences and other women that she knows' experiences, it was really... What, what I came away with was it doesn't matter where you are, what country you're from, like every, this, this experience is global for women. And harassment, violence, different problems, sure, but... I mean, if you look like I was at a dinner party last night with uh, with women who are in Brussels and in my feet, in my age, so early in their careers, and it was similar conversations, right? Like we're all sitting around talking about bosses who've come on to you at jobs or colleagues that have been hitting on you, and and everybody at the table had a story. And the fact that I could be speaking to the executive director of UN Women, and she could say, "Oh yeah, I had you know, I, I was talking to my my colleagues at my level, and it's the same conversations." It's really disheartening. But it's also good that we're starting to have these conversations because otherwise it would just stay at dinner tables. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, not being able to know the experience of being a woman and and to be subject to that on a a really regular basis. Uh, What I will say is that it's important that we do keep having those conversations. Um, Politico this week is hosting a Women Rule Summit where Me Too is going to be one of the discussion points. And we're going to have men and women discussing how you can move forward on this. But it's very noticeable here in Europe, and we've seen it in our own reporting, where we get a lot of people come to us with what I believe to be true stories. At the very least, I know that they believe it to be true and they experience something. But we haven't really gotten to the point where people are willing to put their names on it, and we haven't been able to publish a huge number of stories. And at one level, that's disappointing because you know that there is a trend, a problem out there that as a journalist you want to write about. And then you have to be fair to all parties who might end up being named in those discussions. Is there anything that you think we can do as journalists or that you would want to encourage other potential victims out there to to do to to elevate the conversation and and to move it forward? It's tricky because it's hard for, for women who are in a more vulnerable position. It's hard to say, yes, you should come forward with this because 
it really does have to be an altruistic thing in some respects because there are a lot of reasons not to come forward. It's, people don't believe you. Uh, you could face backlash from your colleagues or from the public. So, so it is hard to ask a woman to come forward. But I hope that Brussels will start facing some of these stories that we've been hearing in the shadows for a long time. Because if you look at national governments in Europe, national governments have been reckoning with this in some cases, France, Sweden, but Brussels has really been behind. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's because it's more of a transitory place where people come in and leave and rotate around. I don't know if it's because of the nature of the institutions, but we know that this happens here. So I guess, from a journalist perspective, what can we do? Keep listening, keep asking for people to trust us and to speak to us. And then when we have stories that we can responsibly tell, we will. And we'll keep listening to your dilemmas and your frustrations here on EU Confidential. We've tried to do that from the beginning. And thanks to journalists like Ginger, we have been reporting about it since. So Ginger, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thanks for having me. Next up, Fumzile Mlambo Nguka, Executive Director of UN Women. Violence against women is really one of the biggest challenges that we are facing in the area of women's empowerment and gender equality. It's probably the ugliest side of patriarchy that maims, kills, disables, humiliates women. And it is a universal problem. There isn't a country in the world that does not have this problem for women. And in all countries, there are the underlying norms and stereotypes about women that tend to treat women as second-class citizens, as possessions, objectified. And that is a problem that you find in all countries. I mean, we estimate that at least there must be a billion women that live with one form of violence or the other if you take the one in three statistics mm -hmm. of women who live with violence and we even think that is conservative because there's a lot of incidences that are unreported and of course even though we've seen great improvements also in homophobia it is still a problem mm -hmm. that we still have to campaign for and make sure that women in their diversity of sexuality are treated and respected in the same way. And of course, we also have got a particular challenge of women with disabilities who even have lesser possibility to defend themselves. They are vulnerable in the hands of their own caregivers who they depend on for everyday life. It's even worse when women have physical disabilities where someone has to look after them, they get violated. Their income where they receive maybe <clears throat> allowances, families abuse that, and in many countries, uh, developing countries, they are less likely to go to school, let alone to go to get jobs that mm -hmm. are meaningful. So it just becomes, you know, double victimization. Mm -hmm. Me too, as it has evolved in the West and where it has evolved with a constituency of women that the media likes, has helped us for the story to be told. Because I think if what has happened to women in Hollywood had happened elsewhere, for that matter, even elsewhere in America, I don't know if it was, it had happened in some way in Massachusetts, it would not have received as much attention. So what Mutu has helped 
is to get the stories of these women with a high profile told and through their stories many other women who do not enjoy similar media attention have also been able to tell their own stories. But also the fact that Me Too has led to some sanction and accountability of the perpetrator has given us a good narrative about dealing with impunity. Mm -hmm. And because this was about sanctioning powerful men who otherwise would have seemed untouchable, it does convey an, a message that even if you are very powerful, the law may catch up with you. Mm -hmm. So to get the workplace to be right is a powerful teaching moment for everybody. Something that is difficult to do in domestic violence, for instance, because a household doesn't have regulations. Children are afraid and partners are afraid to report because these are the people that they have to live with the rest of their lives. They depend on them, they love them. So it's a different relationship altogether. But if we are able at the workplace to be successful, to take on powerful people, those that are abusive at home can see that those people who are the bosses, who are much more powerful than me as an uncle in a home, if they can get into trouble, I could jolly get into trouble myself. So it really is an important space for us. The important thing is not to lose the momentum. Mm -hmm. It is to make sure that we are able to take these examples of what has happened in the US and test them also in other parts of the world where you have multinationals. So critics of the movement would mm -hmm. say it goes too far or that... What, it... what do you mean it goes too far? There's a billion women who are living with violence who have no recourse. Mm -hmm. There's about 10 men at most, who have faced music, that's already hurts a lot. You had two men, it's too much. Mm -hmm. You had a billion women, hello. Yeah. Women are victims, they die. They live with depression. They are deformed, they are disabled. Mm -hmm. Who is gonna speak for them? Right. Is that not but too much? Is, but you said yourself, I mean, these, this is a very specific demographic of women who mm. are getting the media space about this, right? Yeah, but, but it has to start somewhere mm -hmm. because these ones who are real victims, the media will not write about. It's a good thing that somebody has put it on the media because otherwise the media wouldn't care about it. Do you think these women are still getting too much of the media space though and it needs to shift downward? Well, that is the responsibility down. of the media to do that. They cannot put it on us. The media has to do its work. If they are so concerned about being politically correct, they must then do their investigative work mm -hmm. and investigate across the board and not be obsessed about these people. We will take whatever is there because if we don't have the celebrities, then no one makes it mm -hmm. in the media. A disabled woman that no one cares about will never write about. So even just to keep the issue on the media, for us, it doesn't matter who's on the media, the issue is there, otherwise the issue is not there. The issue of violence against women. Yeah, the issue. So right now, our back against the wall will take whatever is there. It's almost like telling the one who is being beaten up, how to fight back. Women will fight back anyway how. Don't prescribe the fighting methods for people to stay alive. Help the people to stay alive by doing your part, those of you who have the power of the pen. I mean, who would ever tell us that when the boys have been, for instance, abused by priests, that the story is too much? Who says it's too much when mm -hmm. these kids are living with so much 
pain that they sometimes never overcome. They become drug addicts. They become abusive themselves. It is a horror story. It's one of the biggest story of our century, in my view. It is everywhere. And right now, men are still being shielded because patriarchy is about affirmative action for men and abuse of women in every sphere, with the violence being the worst. Right. Yeah. So. And I'll ask this question. You feel free not to answer, but yeah. I, you you've been a woman in a male-dominated field in mm. governments for a yeah. long time. Have you ever had a Me Too moment? I haven't had, uh, thank God. But I actually know too many people who have had, mm -hmm. and that is why for me it's also this is such an emotional subject because when people have had to report, I've actually seen with my eyes how a woman has become a problem. You spend your whole time fighting for the woman to have her story believed. You know, it becomes just a fight for the woman to be believed. If everyone who has a story to tell never tells a story, it is normalized. Mm -hmm. And we're fighting for normalization of impunity. So one of your colleagues, I think the UN Secretary General, I don't know her exact title, but yesterday said that you, your plan with the Spotlight Initiative and is to eradicate violence against women. Well, I don't know. I mean, of course, eradicate is an ideal, you know, is an aspiration. Do you but think I that's think possible? And do you in, think in, it'll in, happen in your lifetime? I hope so, at least in yours. <laughs> it's not in mine, in yours. Uh, it's, it's an ambition to have, because uh, we need to galvanize and to motivate as many people as possible. Spotlight will not do it alone. Spotlight has to be one of the force for good that will attract other actors, other partners. Mm -hmm. I mean, I uh, think if we consider that there was a time when slavery was, you know, it just happens. It reached a moment where it was unacceptable. People, those who were slaves and those who were not, took a stand, fought until slavery was outlawed, and it is a crime. It still happens today, but it's not a mainstream. It is something that creates reaction to people. When it happens, we know what needs to do. Same thing about racism. Racism and colonialism, it was there, it was happening. You could be as racist as you like, get away with it, have apartheid in South Africa and so on. There was a turning point. We need a turning point on gender equality and violence against women. We have not reached that point. You don't think we've hit the turning point? Or there's no turning point yet? No, we haven't. Mm. We haven't. I mean, we, we definitely haven't. The fact that people are afraid to report because they don't think that their story will be believed. People will report if someone is being racist to them. You know, Starbucks will close the shop and have a workshop the whole day to address this. Have you ever had any company coming to a standstill because women are being harassed? The UN has a crisis. Yeah. You know, the UN has to also put its house in order. We are lucky that the Secretary General is leading from the front, but I cannot say the whole institution mm -hmm. is fit for purpose as far as this is concerned. So there's a fight in multilateral, in churches, in sports clubs, in the media houses, in public service, in private sector. This is one crime that is committed everywhere. The Istanbul Convention mm. in the European Union has been a big debate yeah. uh, for the Council of Europe's Convention on Violence yeah. Against Women. Yeah. Because I think almost half of European Union countries still haven't ratified yeah, and, it. And are pushing back actively. Yes. I mean, the fact that people can actually stand up in a parliament in Europe and fight against the ratification of Istanbul Convention, I mean, that should just tell you 
how difficult this is. Where are these people coming from who have a constituency that expects them to take this posture in a public platform? Mm -hmm. But it's huge. In Bulgaria, there was yeah. a huge public protest against it. Uh, protest the ratification of it and the parliament actually decided not to because of the public outcry. Mm. I mean these are public representatives who are representing the best values of that society and something like that. They've got to stop themselves mm -hmm. from making this kind of decision because there isn't support in the public. That's, right. That is the concern. So, so what would you say to a country who's dealing with that? Uh, that the well, majority of people don't want this convention to be ratified. Well, they have to fight because the fact that, uh, I mean, I don't know if you'd say majority, majority. It's just that those who are against are very vocal, very organized. I think one of the problems that we've had is that uh, the more progressive, more feminist people, and sometimes in some countries as well organized as those who are conservative and fighting back. And I think there's a big wake up call also for the feminist movement to extend our size, and that is why for us, we and women also, working with men and boys, working with churches, working with youth, has become so important because we recognize that just women, just by themselves, who are activists, this is not big enough in number. So the EU with Spotlight is yes. investing in violence against women abroad. For yeah, the most it's, it's part. reaching out to. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that's, I mean, you mentioned the UN needs to get its house in order. Do you think the EU, by investing abroad but not ratifying this convention at home, Mixed we need both. We need both. I mean, I know, I don't, I'm not saying that because they are doing spotlight, they are not trying to fight to get the countries in Europe to ratify. It is a battle. It's a site of struggle. So it's, it's fighting these things simultaneously. You were listening to the executive director of UN Women. Next up, the podcast panel, after a message from our sponsor. A message from the Martin Center. This week was all about a strong society for a growing economy. Two days ago, we hosted our award-winning Economic Ideas Forum. We wish to thank all of you who joined us this week on Politico.eu. Learn more at www.eif2018.fr. And now it's time to welcome back the Brussels Brains Trust. Hello, Alva. Hi, Ryan. Hi, I uh, hear that you had a bit of a bike crash. We almost didn't have a brain arriving this morning at the panel. <laughs> yeah, the adrenaline is um, wearing off, so if I start to slump, wake me up. Okay. Hi, Lena Eberus. <laughs> Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alva. Thank God you're in one piece. <laughs> now, it is the Football World Cup, or soccer, as some of the world refers to it. So we're going to bring in a new labeling system for this podcast panel, and we're going to commence with an EU kickoff. Lena, I think you wanted to give some thumbs up to some trade negotiations. Yes, yes. From all the Commissioner Malmström is delivering on every single promise she has made for the past two years. And she just launched the negotiations with Australia, Ryan, for the free trade agreement. So, so it's, it's a your thumbs own up for country. down under. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she will finish and she will go today to New Zealand. So once again, the EU is saying, hey, listen, we're still the biggest single market. We're still the most strategic trade partner for the world. And trade can bring us together. Big thumbs up to Commissioner Malmström and her team. Is that a big shoulder shrug from you, Alva, or <laughs> do you have a view on this one? Well, well, we'll see it when we believe it. You know, there's been so much drama around these free trade well, you'll agreements. You'll believe it when you see it. Yeah. <laughs> but there yeah. we go. That's the effect of the bike crash, folks. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that we've seen a lot of strange happenings at the very end of some free trade agreements this year. And yeah, starting them off isn't finishing them. That's exactly right. I've got a hot tip for everyone bringing in my Australian uh, knowledge to this discussion. There's going to be big problems around Europe's geographical indicators um, in the negotiations, both with Australia and New Zealand. Both countries consider it basically naked protectionism. They don't see why the soil of a particular part of France should affect the way a wine can be described. So I think there'll be some problems there. By the same token, a previous New Zealand prime minister used to describe New Zealand as the 29th member state. That's how aligned they considered themselves with Europe. So my old friend Jacinda Ardern, who's the prime minister of New Zealand, I think that she'll do this negotiation in her sleep. She'll literally race to finish this one off and the Australians will have to work very hard to keep up with New Zealand. But everything can't be positive. We're going to have to move into some negative territory now with an EU red card. So I am going to nominate Matteo Salvini, the head of the league in Italy, for his comments on Monday regarding Italy's Roma population. He said in a TV interview that Italy plans to kick out Roma from abroad, but, quote, unfortunately, we will have to keep the Italian Roma because we can't expel them, end quote. Well, that's frankly outrageous. It breaches any number of EU laws and also the the founding treaties and Charter of Fundamental Rights of the EU. And you can't expel any Roma, Matteo Salvini, because uh, that's not allowed under the EU's uh, free movement system. Reactions there? I think I find it very difficult to do it without uh, getting infringement proceedings against Italy. It seems like something that is probably aimed at getting more votes, popularity, Let's see if he actually follows through with it. It's a very populist statement, isn't it? I hope that the European Union now is on the lookout in case they do start trying to ship uh, Roma elsewhere. And let's also remember that the policy around Roma and Roma integration is a key building block of fundamental rights here in Brussels. They have a lot of policies on on Roma integration. So, yeah, I think we should be watching out for what they're going to say about this. But it just seems like another thing that Brussels and Rome are going to butt heads about. Mind you that it's not the first time. I remember President Sarkozy did the same thing a few years ago. The commission intervened. The commission made a bit of a pressure on the French government. And it wasn't a government at all similar to the current Italian government. So... It's unacceptable. But as always, we are not getting to the root of the problem. And uh, every government will come or wants more votes or wants more popularity. Okay, we're going to attack the women. Oh, we're going to attack the migration. So there is no no solution to finish with the problem. There's no solution or the EU is not applying the right resources to find a solution. Precisely, precisely. They want to resolve all the problems outside of the EU in Africa and the Middle East, and they make conferences on that, but they, they are unable to make one conference in order to put, as you just said, their resources to solve it. It's like a, a, a football, you know, the, the ball from one side to the other. Well, seeing as we already raised Australia in the podcast, this discussion does remind me of the 2001 election debate in Australia. And the Prime Minister there made what is probably the formative statement of my political interest and engagement. And he was a Conservative Prime Minister, and he deliberately attempted to prevent refugees and asylum seekers from landing via boats to Australia. And his comment was, we decide who comes into this country and the manner in which they come. And it was such a perfect distillation of what people tend to want from a government. They want a government that 
is in control of things and and that often includes being in control of a border and he obviously used it for very right-wing political purposes that statement but I always come back to that thought when I look at how Europe approaches migration because it developed the Schengen system and we all know the advantages and the beauties of the Schengen system but it never quite figured out that fundamental first task of how do you manage who mm-hmm. comes through these thousands of miles of coastline and these 28 country borders and I think I think essentially you're right until they figure out a better system for deciding who comes through the front door there's always going to be a mess about what back doors are being used. But this is very frustrating because, I mean, people have been traveling across borders for millennia. The idea that you can control your borders when they're like thousands of kilometers long is ridiculous. And Europe does not have a migration crisis anymore. There is no migration crisis anymore. The numbers of people coming here are tiny in comparison to the people who live across the Middle East in camps alone. I mean, I am always absolutely flabbergasted by Ireland aligning themselves with the migration priority. There are basically like lower than a percentage of migrants or refugees in Ireland. How on earth can they think that it's a priority? We're not even in the Schengen zone. I, it just, or I, is it that I'm, they like it the way that it is and they don't want it to change? I'm just really tired of this rhetoric. Oh, we can't deal with the migrants. Uh, the, there's too many refugees. That is just not true. And it's particularly not true in Hungary and Poland. So this idea that we're being awash with migrants is a lie. Well, maybe now that we've touched on Hungary, we can move to our third and final element of the podcast panel, which is uh, we're calling it EU Onside. We (laughs) noticed uh, Viktor Orban's speech over the weekend that was very interesting. While we were all distracted with Angela Merkel's troubles, Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, who is one of the best speechmakers in the EU, he is one of the best strategists in the EU, he gets people very angry in the way he applies those skills, Um, but he came out with a speech that uh, uh, said he's sticking with the European People's Party. So that's why we called it EU Onside, because he threatened the idea of setting up a new party. He threatened the idea of peeling off and creating a bloc with more right-wing Central Europeans. And and so some of the things he said, um, and I'll get your reaction on it, he said, border defence is not a Europe-wide task, but a national task. He said he'd just spoken with Donald Trump about the difference, and by that I think we mean the similarity between, quote, a beautiful wall and a beautiful fence like he has in Hungary. He accused the EU of raising rule of law issues as a way to secretly federalise the European Union. He went on to say, just sort of blew Jean-Claude Juncker apart, the European Commission president. He said that George Soros could have written the EU's budget um, because that is how pro-immigrant the budget was. He said that if Germany considers Islam a part of its society, then Germany is a part of Islam. And he basically said that the people will speak in 2019. And so anyone who thinks that migration is going to go away and that we can have these open borders or this welcoming of refugees and migrants, that they're going to get a lesson taught to them in the 2019 election. He's a brilliant to always put himself the talk of the town. He gets the attention. He knows how to make people angry. But moreover, this time he stressed the division in within Europe. He stressed his importance and his way in order to uh, 
to, let's say, influence the upcoming commission and choosing who's going to be in the commission. Unfortunately, the whole speech was built on commemorating an unprecedented European figure. Yeah, it was about Helmut Kohl. Exactly. He disguised all these comments Helmut, with saying, I love Helmut yeah, Kohl. Yeah, it's really painful because we some, such a personality to be discussed in a speech of stressing the division of Europe, the internal struggle within European powers with Mr. Orban. It's, it's just really, really painful. It's very interesting that he views the European budget as being pro-migrant because I see it as securitizing EU's borders and basically trying to keep as many people outside Europe as possible. There is some money that goes into integration of people. When into, actually, very specifically, when we got a leak of the draft conclusions of next week's EU Leaders Summit, and they literally describe a need to reinforce things called disembarkation platforms, by which I think is a nice, soft way of talking about things that could become camps, but which you know they're going to ultimately say are just processing centres. And the whole point is that's about places. Where do you put people when you turn boats back? Or where do you, you know, put them when you stop them from coming to Europe in the first place? So it's exactly to your point. Yeah, and also they were talking about bringing an external element of the fund that is on migration uh, for stemming migration. I mean, they're talking about bringing 10,000 people into Frontex. I mean, that's almost five times as many staff that are in Frontex now. So I think it's a very interesting interpretation from Orban of the EU budget. He said he doesn't want a penny of EU money to go to migrants. But this is all just, you know, it's a bargaining chip. He will bargain away different things. And I think also this is, he's made this speech because he's very angry that there is a shift, a proposed shift in the way that structural funds, for example, will be spent, which many people have alleged that Hungary and Orban are using in a corrupt manner to basically solidify the rule of Fidesz. Mm. So I think that you have to put this in the context of the European budget debate. He's basically saying, these are my red lines, but the larger debate is really about whether or not money will be funneled away from Eastern Europe to places like Italy and Spain. To help them deal with the reality of the migrant situation. Yeah. And in corrupt or not, it is naked self-interest, where Hungary is clearly one of the big beneficiaries of the budget. They say they don't want to beg from other countries or from Germany, but he's got only a 12-year plan to not be one of those net beneficiaries. So it is a bit ambitious to expect that uh, you, can, you can dictate the terms of the money when you're getting so much of it. Oh, as well, he has proposed the 25% tax on all the organizations that they help migrants. So I think we will see more and more of that, maybe maybe worse, I think. Well, last time Mr. Orban proposed a special tax, it didn't work out so well. He wanted to tax mm-hmm. internet usage, and that's where 100,000 people hit the streets in Budapest, <laughs> and he had to reverse that one pretty quickly. Let's hope more than 2,000 will hit the streets then. Well, thank you both. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. A big thank you to the several thousand people who've already signed up to become formal members of our community. Uh, If you'd like to do that and you haven't already, you can go to politico.eu forward slash registration and tick the EU Confidential box. And remember, wherever you found this podcast, please take a moment to rate, review, or like I said, subscribe to the community and we will keep growing and we will have more fun for you next week. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Gray, Nicole Fallett and Wei Donglin for everything they do to make EU Confidential possible.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.